Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Thankful for the opportunity to be able to open God's Word for us this morning. And whenever pastor comes out, goes out of town, it's a blessing to be able to have the chance to fill in for him. Although I have to admit, I don't know this morning if he picked necessarily his sharpest tool in the shed to preach on a Sunday morning. Just kidding, if any of you were there for the ordination service, don't worry. The, I actually asked that guy to come. I didn't know he'd say that, but um, <laughs> he's uh, mentored me a lot, and he's a, he's a huge blessing, but uh, obviously it was, a, it was a good joke, enough that I heard like half the congregation defending me. So thank you for the loyalty. Um, I heard many concerned afterwards, so, but uh, praise the Lord, he uses uh, the foolishness of preaching in order to bring glory to himself. And so this morning, I'm excited for the chance to uh, share God's Word with you. We'll be in uh, Matthew chapter 4 this morning, and as we get into our message on how discipleship starts here, let's uh, open this time in prayer. Lord, thank you indeed for the wonderful truth that someday we will see you, our Savior, face to face. It's an incredible joy, an incredible thought to realize that someday we get to spend our eternity with you. And even though we look now at a world that is cursed by sin, we see the effects of that upon our everyday life, and as we look at the world around us and even in the sin of our own hearts, Lord, today, I pray that you'd help for us to be motivated to live for you now, knowing that the time that we live on this earth is such a small fraction of what eternity will be. And so may we use this short life that you've given us strategically, wonderfully, in order to then be able to stand before you and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so, Lord, I pray today you guide us through what is a simple passage, but one that's important for us to meditate on. And I pray that each of us would be disciples of Jesus Christ for your glory. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. I want you to think this morning, as you reflect, if you ever take time to just reflect on your spiritual walk, how you've gotten to where you are today, I want you to think about the people that have invested in you. If you were to put a list in your head of some of the top five people who have invested in you, especially spiritually, who would those people be? And as you think about the way that they invested, you ask, what ways did they do it? Was it a formal process? Was it an informal one? Was it as you went along the way? Was it in specific meetings with them? How did those people who made such an impact on your life invest themselves into you so that today you stand where you are as a believer I think it's important for all of us to realize that throughout our entire lives, discipleship is going on whether we realize it or not. And even as we thought today, as this time that we live on this earth is so small in comparison to eternity, how are we living out the opportunity to disciple others right now? I think of a story of a man who many of you have probably heard of before. He was a wicked slave trader who had experienced and also inflicted a ruthless life. His life was corrupt, wicked, despicable. He was known to be a horrible and foolish person. In fact, even he himself knew that. He was motivated by money and by earthly pleasures until he was finally, as a slave trader, on a ship that was supposed to be heading home, they had to take another route. And as they took that other route, that ship ended up uh, sinking. And in the midst of that, this hardened sailor finally softened to the gospel message and became a believer in Jesus Christ. The Lord spared his life and allowed him to get home. As many of you know, this is the man who came to write the the hymn Amazing Grace, and this is John Newton's story. But there's actually a part of John Newton's story that, as I learned more about him, fascinated me, and it was the way that he mentored others, two individuals in particular. So he became a pastor or a curate in a small town called Olney, and as he did so, there was a man who was incredibly depressed and discouraged. 
had lived not too different of a life from his own, but this man in particular had struggled with so many family issues, so many depressive episodes, that he actually tried numerous times to commit suicide and was unsuccessful. And he came to the point where finally, after one of those attempts, he came to faith in Christ and very quickly ended up under the influence of John Newton. And John Newton was very instrumental in this man's growth. He then became one of the greatest poets that England had ever known and authored many of the hymns that are in our hymn book today. In fact, uh, Newton and this man, William Cooper, his name is spelled like Cowper if you see it in our hymn books, um, he, them together actually wrote their own hymn book. And many of them are ones that we sing today, including the song, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And I love that in that hymn, he talks about the dying thief, and William Cooper really resonated with, his, with the dying thief as he wrote that song. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And so Cooper, took, uh, Cooper was taken by Newton and brought under his wing and really discipled effectively to the point where he actually became uh, the right-hand man of John Newton while he pastored in that small town of Olney. Now, there were times where throughout his life he came back to more and more of those depressive episodes, many of them probably medically brought on, and Newton stayed with him the whole time to support him and help him in his faith. I like seeing the role that Newton took in the life of William Cooper. But not only that, there was another man that, William, uh, that uh, John Newton had the chance to disciple as he went through his life. There was a young boy, really, he had a, Newton had a friendship with a rather wealthy family in England. And that family came out to visit him in Olney, and then this little boy sat on his lap, and he told him the stories of how he had been a wicked slave trader and how God had changed him and brought him to Christ. And no doubt he even probably sang some of the hymns that he and his friend had written as this little boy sat on his lap. That little boy always remembered the godly influence of John Newton in his life. As he grew up, he actually became a very successful political operator as he got older. He was one of the youngest people ever uh, elected into the British Parliament. In fact, he became a member over one of the major districts, one of the hardest districts to win as a young man. He won over very quickly. And he really decided that he was going to live a riotous life. He was going to live however he wanted to in his young adulthood. And so he did just that. He lived for every party. He lived for every pleasure. He was immensely popular as he was rising up the ranks of fame in England. And yet the Lord began to break him and he remembered the man who, as a child, he sat on his knee and had told him many different stories about how he came to faith in Christ. And knowing that John Newton was not too far from where he was, this man, whose name is William Wilberforce, actually invited John Newton to come to his home, except he wanted it to be really secret. He didn't want anyone to know. And so he made it so subtle that no one ever knew that Newton came in and out of his home. And John Newton took an incredible role in William Wilberforce's life in discipling him. And then, as a young man, William Wilberforce decided that he was going to make it his mission while he was in Parliament that he was going to abolish the slave trade. And it took his entire life. He needed all the youth that he had all the way up until the end of his life when he was an old, old member in Parliament and yet finally saw that battle won. It's interesting for us to look at the life of John Newton and see the way that from the very early on in both of these men's faith, he took them under his arm and allowed them to become even greater to some extent than John Newton himself was. And really, we have other people in the Bible who show us the joy of what it's like to disciple someone from the very beginning of their faith. Think about Barnabas and the way that he brought Paul under his wing, and that he, he stood up for him amidst all the apostles and said, no, this man is different now. He is completely changed. I love reading about Paul as he wrote to Titus and to Timothy. Timothy in particular, as he knew his family, he knew that he grew up with godly influences, and yet as a young man, became under the influence of the Apostle Paul, and really became like a son to him. 
You see, really, discipleship is so vitally important in all of our lives. But there's a particular joy when we get to be at it right from the beginning of someone's faith, where we get to be there right after the moment they've accepted Christ, maybe even when you've been the one who has led somebody to Christ. Now, as many of us could think of in our own lives, we think of moments where we were uh, already somewhat mature in the faith and someone came alongside us and discipled us. That very often happens. But tonight, to this morning, I really want us to think about what is the joy when we get to lead somebody to Christ ourselves. And so this morning, we begin by looking in Matthew chapter 4, a passage that is all familiar to us as we look at how discipleship starts here, starting really in verse 17, as this embarks a new change early on in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So in verse 17, from the time that Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 18 of Matthew 4, and Jesus walking by the sea of Galilee saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, and his ship was Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. This is a simple passage, the passage that we know of being about fishers of men. And the goal this morning is for us to realize that we can be disciplers, and one of the most exciting times we can be disciplers is right at the beginning of somebody else's faith. And really, as we look even in verse 17, this was a time of transition in Jesus' ministry. Before, whenever we saw him, he was alone. And so we look today as we start realizing that discipleship starts by realizing or perceiving your calling. And so it begins there in verse 17. So as Jesus in this tradition, he had not actually transitioned. He had not yet preached very often in his earthly ministry yet. He had not amassed followers. When we'd seen him, he was coming to visit John the Baptist, and he was by himself. But now we see Jesus is now going to begin a new step in his ministry as he begins to preach the message of the kingdom of God and as he begins to amass a following. And so we see Jesus started here in this passage with a command, and that command was, follow me. It says in verse 19, he saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And then in verse 22, they immediately left their ships and their father and followed him. And so Jesus goes up to these two sets of brothers. He goes up to Andrew and to Peter, and he went up to James and to John, and he called to them and says, follow me. Now, this word follow, in fact, if you wanted to ever do a study for your own personal devotions, look, look through the use of the word follow throughout all the Gospels, and it'll help you understand a lot about what our call to discipleship is like. But in this passage, Jesus calls these four men to follow him. And back in that time, with the way that a rabbi or a teacher and a student operated, normally the student would go to the rabbi and say, I would like to follow you. Am I allowed to follow you? Can I please be one of your students? Can I be a trainee or a disciple, is what they would ask. But in this case, we see the exact opposite. In this case, the rabbi is the one going out looking for people to follow him. In this case, the rabbi called the student, and that is an incredible honor. And so Jesus said, follow, and Andrew and Peter immediately left their nets and followed. James and John did the same thing. In fact, they didn't just leave their nets and their boat, they left their father and followed him. 
In fact, Jesus made similar calls to the disciples in the second half of John chapter 1, which was a passage that Pastor Phelps preached on even a few weeks ago as he talked about the need for disciples to make disciples. And in that passage, his call was similar, but John the Baptist at that point pointed others to Jesus and said, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then after a while, Jesus did come and he called two of his disciples who were Andrew and likely the apostle John, and he says, come and see. Then later on, Philip is with Nathaniel, and Nathaniel asks the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I almost picture just a little twinkle in Philip's eye. I think he probably had heard Jesus say this already. And he says, come and see. You see, friends, the invitation to follow Jesus is a call that goes out to everybody. And really, following Jesus starts at our salvation. Following Jesus starts at our salvation. Because there are certain aspects or parts of our salvation that the more we grow in our spiritual walk, the more we realize. There are so many theological truths that as we understand our salvation better, we realize, wow, not only am I saved, I'm adopted. I'm reconciled. I'm redeemed. There's all these different concepts about our salvation that the more we bask in it, the more we realize how wonderful it is. And I think one aspect that's a wonderful part for us to rejoice in is also, it's very simply a call to follow Jesus with our life. Our salvation is a call for us to come after Jesus and follow him. When you are saved, you begin your journey as a disciple. And salvation, as you could say, is the beginning of your discipleship. Now, I don't want to just assume today that everyone here is a follower of Jesus. There might be some of you here today who the offer has been extended. Jesus offers to you his wonderful, free salvation. He says, come follow me. And in a moment, we're going to learn what the joys of that ends up being. He has invited you into that wonderful relationship with the God of the universe, and all you have to do is accept that call. All you have to do is accept it and follow him. Jesus has called all of us to be his followers. Now, as we read in Matthew and we read in the Gospels, he calls his disciples and his apostles in a unique way, but that still is a call that he makes to us, follow me. And so in this case, we realize that as we perceive our calling, our calling to be fishers of men, Jesus commanded all of us to follow him, and that starts at the moment of our salvation. In fact, in Philippians, he even says, he who began that good work in you will complete it. And Jesus has been there from the very start calling you to be a follower. But following Jesus also means that you end up sharing a deep relationship. It means that you share a deep relationship. You see, the idea of a follower, again, was very physical. The, the idea was almost it was an etiquette when you followed a rabbi. As he walked down the street, you walked behind him on the street. There was certain levels of etiquette that you would follow in order to make sure that you became as much like this rabbi as you could. You didn't just learn his teachings, you learned his life. You stuck with him. You learned exactly how he lived so that you could mimic and become much like your rabbi. And so when Jesus invited fishermen and tax collectors, and carpenters, and zealots, and others to follow him. He invited them into an intimate relationship with him. It was a relationship and an experience that couldn't be traded for, everything, for anything. Every day was an opportunity for these disciples to get to know their rabbi better and better. And really, this is the nature of true discipleship, that we have the chance to get to know Jesus Christ every day better. I love the song that says, "'In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus.'" Because truly, every day is a day to live in light of that wonderful relationship that as he called each of us to follow him, may we take that call just as sweetly as we read in this passage and see the the way that each of these disciples responded when Jesus called them to follow him. We get to have a deep relationship with Christ. And really, 
as you have the chance to disciple others, as you have the chance, maybe even for those who are new in their faith, to bring them under, their, under your wing and lead them along, as you have the chance to do that, you'll find that those people that you end up getting the chance to disciple and those who you've been discipled by become some of your closest friends, some of your deepest friendships as you invest in them. And Jesus, even at the end of his ministry, looked at the disciples and he says, I call you friends. And that truly is a wonderful joy that disciples of Jesus get to enjoy. He has called us to follow him, and that starts at our salvation. It involves sharing that deep relationship with Jesus Christ, and it also signifies a new lifestyle. It signifies for us a new lifestyle. It says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And in verse 20, it says, they straightway left their nets and followed him. And in verse 22, they immediately left their ship and their father and followed him. You see, Jesus promised that he was going to make great things of these disciples. He was going to take the time to invest in them and allow them to be even greater than they ever could have imagined. Jesus called these fishermen, and they straightway left their nets. They took what was familiar, comfortable, and safe, and left it behind in order to seek the new life that Jesus himself had called them to. And friends, Jesus has called all of us to follow him that way. And it requires that we leave behind things that don't matter, it requires that we leave behind the opinions of what others will think about us. It means that we leave behind some of the burdens of this life. It means that we leave behind some of the materialism, some of the things that ultimately are going to be gone when we're in eternity. It means that we choose to set the things of heaven ahead of the things of earth and our priorities. We, it signifies a brand new lifestyle when we become followers of Jesus Christ. Living for him is different than it was before he called us out of the ship. And so Jesus commands us to follow him, but the promise that follows with that is that I will make you fishers of men. So in verse 19 where he says, follow me, that's the command. And the promise is, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus made a promise to these four that he would make them fishers of men. And really what Jesus was masterful at doing was taking something that was physically in front of the people who were there and pointing out a spiritual reality. And so here he uses a metaphor. These men, as we look in Matthew chapter 4, are all fishermen. And so he calls them away from that life and said, rather than fishing fish, they are now going to fish men. And we don't want to ever overstretch a principle like this or a metaphor that Jesus uses, but I do believe there are two aspects to this important picture of being fishers of men that we should realize this morning. Number one, fishing is an act of pursuit. Fishing is an act of pursuit. Because as fishermen are out on the, on the sea, on the lake, as they are going out, they are seeking to find where the fish are. In fact, these fishermen were experienced. They knew where in the Sea of Galilee, most likely they would be able to catch fish. And so the one who seeks to catch men with the gospel looks for the best place he can to cast this net as skillfully and carefully as he can. His task is to pursue people. Now, I'm not an experienced fisherman, not even close. I do remember one time watching a documentary about the Loch Ness, and as they went over Loch Ness trying to use all these different fish scanners to see if they can sense anything big that's under there. I'll let you study that on your own later. But it is interesting the fact that they do have this equipment that can look down into the water and be able to tell where a lot of the fish are. In the sense, we should be seek to become as skillful as we can in the art of pursuing people. How often do you think about where is the most strategic place in my life for me to reach out to the lost? Maybe it's a certain department at your workplace. Maybe it's the neighbors in your, in your neighborhood. 
Maybe it's a certain club you're a part of in the community. Where's the strategic place where you know you can make that your mission field? And so it's important for all of us, even as we think of being fishers of men, to know that it's an act of pursuit. We should be pursuing. We should be making a priority out of looking for those who need the gospel and finding them. Fishing not only is an act of pursuit, though it's also an act of catching. Because even if you know where the fish are, it takes work to be able to catch the fish. Now, obviously, the fishermen, in this case, when they look to catch fish, they don't do it with the intent of friendship. He catches it for the sake of food and for business. But a fisher of men uses the gospel net to bring in those who are lost in the sea of darkness and sin. Remember, Jesus even gave us the call, the command to go and make disciples of all nations, and he promises us that he is with us always, even until the end of the earth. Very simply, all of us are called to be pursuers of people. We are called to look for the best places we can. Now, the great joy that we do have in this passage is that we are not doing it on our own. Because in this promise, Jesus does not say, follow me, and then work really hard to be fishers of men. Now, there is a level of effort that we'll put in as we do that, but it says, I will make you fishers of men. It's a work that Jesus Christ himself does. It's a job that we're given to do, completely enabled by the strength that Jesus Christ gives us. That when we follow him with our everyday life, as we look to pursue people, Jesus will give us the strength, the ability to catch men, even when we feel like we can't. Because, you know, the nature of, of ever trying, if you ever get into an argument with someone and you're trying to persuade someone to your side, right, it's really hard. We all have pretty stubborn wills, don't we? The nature of persuading a soul to accept Christ as their Savior is a daunting task to think about sometimes. But we realize that really it's not us who's doing it, but Christ himself who helps us in that process. And so as we pursue fish, the art of catching men, Jesus Christ himself is going to be the one who helps us. And we work at it continually. I just had a conversation that was encouraging with a member of our church family a couple, probably a couple weeks ago, where she was telling me, now, I've tried these tracks, but this track is my favorite. She's like, this is the one that I found when I go out into the community. When I give this one to somebody, this is the one that people seem to soften at as I share the gospel with them. What I loved about that is it meant that she's been experimenting enough to know what she thinks will work, right? Like, it takes work for us to learn how to be fishers of men, and God himself will enable us to do that task. And so it's important for all of us to realize that we should perceive our calling. And as we perceive this calling, this calling to become fishers of men, it is vitally important for us to take that call seriously. If the church is to do one thing, it is to go and to make disciples of all nations. And so we should step back and on occasion ask ourselves, who am I investing myself into? And some of you might feel like I don't have much to offer, but if you know enough to even have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have enough to share that same message that saved you with somebody else who was lost. And so each of us can be those who seek to catch man. So first of all, we need to perceive our calling, and now we prepare for catching. And I, I intend to be somewhat practical for us today, but as we begin thinking about what are some ways that we can help catch men, first of all, we prepare prayerfully. We prepare prayerfully. There needs to be a deep conviction inside of each of us that nothing of any spiritual benefit in our life will ever be done without prayer. We need to be on our knees as we consider who we would pursue, when we would pursue them, how we would pursue them. As you're in your car on your way to the coffee shop to meet up with that friend, you pray. As you think about the person who's across the street and you're trying to get up the strength to open your front door and walk across the street and share the gospel with your neighbor, you pray. As you think of that family member who you just need to send that text or call to, you pray. 
Prayer is a way of recognizing our weakness and God's strength. It's a sign of complete dependence on the only one who can really change hearts. And even as we think about the opportunity to make disciples, we think of Proverbs 69, a man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. There might be people that you put in in your mind as targets of those you're going to share the gospel with and ask the Lord to direct your steps. Or even as James 4 encouraged us, think of those uh, that the Lord will be the one who guards our sex. Tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we go into such a city and do this and do that. And only if the Lord allows us will we do this and will we do that. But I love the passage in Luke 6, which is listed on the screen today. Luke 6, verses 12 and 13, before Jesus called his own disciples. It says, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. You see, Jesus Christ spent all night in prayer before he decided on those whom he was going to invest his life into the most. It's interesting to look at the way that Jesus had, even amongst his disciples, he had three who were particularly close. He had 12 that he invested in. And then at other times we see that he invested in even larger groups. But the way that Jesus invested in others is he did pick some specifically. He pursued them, and he sought to bring them under his wing and help them grow. And so we should prepare prayerfully, because Jesus himself even spent the entire night in prayer on that mountain before he came down and chose the 12 that he was then going to lead. And so very simply, as you consider, if you take very seriously this calling to be a discipler, really points two and three today really depend on how seriously you take point one. That if you decide that this mission is important for you to disciple others, then these are some things we need to do, and we need to start by being really prayerful about who we invest our time and our life into. Not only do we prepare uh, prayerfully, we also prepare personally. We prepare personally. It's wise for us as disciples to look at our own lives and make sure some important details are in order. For instance, the Bible tells us, make sure, and 2 Peter tells us, wherefore the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fail. It's important for us to even step back and ask ourselves about our own salvation. How confident are you in your own salvation? As pastor often says, are you sure that you're sure that you're sure that you're saved? In order to be a discipler, we have to be sure that we are truly believers in Jesus Christ. If you walk out and share your faith with others and you're unsure of your own, you will not be confident as you share that message. And we must be confident in the wonderful power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So make sure that you are confident about your salvation. As you prepare yourself, also ask, what are my motives for sharing the gospel? Sometimes I think we do it out of guilt. We feel like it's, a, it's an important required part of the checklist of the Christian life that we should do, and we feel somewhat guilty. And we're motivated by gift, that, guilt that definitely lacks joy. But 2 Peter 3.9 is the kind of passage that can motivate us, even as we think the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We can be motivated by the love of God, when we see the lost around us. We can be motivated by the fear of God when we realize the consequence for sin. We can even be motivated by the rewards of God, longing to hear God say to us someday, well done, my good and faithful servant. So we weigh even our motives. We also weigh our lifestyle, which is why Matthew 7 is listed on the screen today. And Matthew 7, in fact, you're probably pretty close to that in your Bible this morning. Matthew 7, verse 3, says, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? But considerest not the beam that is in thine own. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, 
Let me pull out the mote of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and thou shalt clearly, or shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Very simply, even as we prepare ourselves personally, we prepare our lifestyle. Is there anything in my life that as I share the gospel with my neighbor that would cause a stumbling block for them to say, what makes them have anything different than what I have? So even as we prepare ourselves personally, we, we make sure that we know our salvation sure. We motivate ourselves with things that God's word would give us to, in order for us to love the lost the way that God does. And we even look at our own lives and we say, Lord, is there anything in my life that would hinder me from being a better gospel witness? And if that's the case, please help me not to judgmentally look at the speck in someone else's eye, but to take the mote out of my own and the beam out of my own. And so even this passage reminds us how important it is for us to prepare ourselves personally prayerfully and personally as we look to share the gospel with others. And then the third thing we need to prepare as we seek to catch others with the gospel is we also need to prepare personally, uh, sorry, prepare uh, to preach the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The two passages that are listed there, John 3, 16 and 17, and 1 Corinthians 15 are some of the simplest summations of the gospel that we have in the New Testament. In John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Even if you only had a couple minutes to share the gospel with someone, to quote John 3, 16 and 17, would give such a wonderful picture of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 is similar, where it says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That passage so well articulates exactly what Christ did for us, how he came down to earth, how he lived, how he died, how he rose again and gave to all of us eternal life. How well are you able to spread the message of the gospel? Even when we put the word preach up there, I think sometimes we might think that that is only the message for the preachers themselves, those who stand up at this pulpit and have the chance to share, but truly all of us are to be preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so how do you share that message? Really, you just have to remember some of the foundational pieces. You start with the problem, and the problem is that all of us are sinners. And then even as we go from the fact that all of us are sinners, which hopefully is not too hard to persuade others on, we all have lied. We all have done things that violate God's law. We go from the problem to, okay, so, okay, I get it. I'm a sinner. What's the big deal with that? And obviously, the problem with being a sinner is that it brings an eternal punishment. So you talk about the punishment of sin and how that follows. And then we go from there, okay, but now what? What happens? Well, Jesus saw us in that condition. He came down, lived the life we could never live, died on the cross to save us from our sins, and rose again. And so how did he beat it? By dying on the cross and rising again. And how can somebody receive it now? It's by grace through faith. It is a free gift that we can receive. Really, the basics of the gospel are just that we're sinners, that it brings a punishment and that Jesus came and fixed that problem, and if we would receive that gift, we will be saved. How ready are you to share that message? I remember one time when I was in high school, I was in a Bible class, and our, our youth pastor uh, put us through an exercise called an elevator gospel, that all of a sudden you're in the elevator with somebody, they have a heart attack, they're on the floor in the elevator, there's nothing you can do to save their life, but you could share the gospel with them in 30 seconds. And he picked me first to come up to the front of the room and do that, and I epically failed in front of my classmates. Um, but it's important for all of us to learn to have even just a simple encapsulated gospel message in our mind that if we have the chance to share it, if you're on the airplane next to someone and they ask you for a reason that you know you'll go to heaven when you die, that you can be able to share it 
in just a quick instance. Maybe it's having some of those verses that I listed on the screen memorized, and you just have a few of those that you're able to pull out. Maybe it's having verses written right in the front of your Bible. Maybe you are able to tell someone the story of how God saved you, and being able to share your salvation testimony might be the easiest way for you to share that message with others. One of the most moving stories I think I've ever heard about someone sharing the gospel quickly is the story of John Harper. Many of you have heard his story. He was on the Titanic as it sank. He was the one who, I believe, yelled as people were getting into the boats, women, children, and the unsaved, get in the boats. <laughs> um, and as he was drowning, he kept yelling out Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. His voice echoing over the waters in the midst of all that turmoil and there was one man who I believe was clinging to some piece of something that was floating and heard that last message, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And he was saved and as he, uh, as, as he actually survived the instance that I was John Harper's last convert. Even just by quoting that one passage over and over and over again, it was enough for someone to realize the message of the gospel. And as we prepare to catch we do need to prepare to be prepared to share that message. Now, sometimes we might not be as smooth as we'd like to be. If you ever come out of a conversation and you had planned all these things to say and you come out of it and you think, ah, oh, I messed up. I didn't say that part. I didn't say that part. Often that does happen. I, I read the story even of a preacher one time who was, was, had just led someone to the Lord. He brought him along to share the gospel message with others. And as his new convert was sharing the gospel with some new people, he's like, oh boy, this is the worst I've ever heard the gospel shared. And yet, by the end of it, the men clearly understood what the gospel was and were saved. Because if you know enough for Jesus Christ to save you, you know enough to share that message with others. Be prepared to preach that wonderful gospel. And so, as we look even today, we see we need to take our calling seriously. That we are called to be fishers of men. And we are to prepare ourselves for that work of catching, both prayerfully and personally, and being ready to preach that message. And lastly, this morning, as we consider this call together, now we progress with confidence. If you think about it, these points here really, point number one, as we thought about our mission to be fishers of men, is Jesus' encouragement for us to get in the boat. And then as we looked at even the, the last point, as we thought through some of the things we need to do to prepare ourselves, those are things we would need to do before we got in the boat to make sure that we're effective fishermen. And now, point three here today, that we progress with confidence, is an encouragement for us while we're in the boat. How do we push forward as we share this message with others, as we are actively fishing for men, what do we need to do? So first of all, the first practical tip this morning is to confidently build friendships. Constantly, confidently build friendships. Now this might seem like a duh factor, and I hope it doesn't seem like an insult to us this morning, but very simply, in order for us to have the chance to share the gospel, we have to have people to share the gospel too. And it takes building sometimes those relationships in order to, to tear down those walls to have the chance to share it. I love that in Luke 2.52, it tells us how Jesus grew. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. He grew even socially to be able to learn how to connect with others. And as we look through the Gospels, we see how wonderfully, how masterfully Jesus connected with people of all different backgrounds. I love the contrast of John chapter 3 leading into John chapter 4, where in John chapter 3, Jesus meeting at night with Nicodemus, one of the most religious people probably in the city of Jerusalem. And then after that, he then meets with, in chapter 4, with the woman at the well, who is the exact opposite. Jesus had the ability to connect with people on all different levels, and it's important for all of us to learn better and better how we can connect with others. 
And, and I hope this doesn't seem overly pragmatic, but even as we think about Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, where it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We need to take the effort to learn about others. We need to take the effort to learn to connect with people that, that have things completely different from us. We need to learn to look on the things of others. And as we do that, it opens more and more doors for us, the opportunity to share the gospel with others. And so really, as, as interesting as this might sound this morning, really what this is encouraging us to do is to grow socially. And as we grow socially, we seek to have those opportunities to share the gospel with others. And so be a connector as much as we possibly can. Be the person that when someone walked into this church on a Sunday morning for the first time, you meet them in the foyer and they immediately have a friend, right? It's important to be able to have that. Whether we feel like we are extroverted or introverted, we all can learn how to do this all the better. Building relationships builds opportunities. And so build as many relationships as you can so that you can progress with confidence as you share the gospel with others. It is much easier, I've found, to share the gospel with those who are your friends sometimes than those who you are just recently meeting. Then also confidently walk in wisdom. Confidently walk in wisdom. That comes in Matthew 10. I think we see a lot of wisdom in God's Word on how we are to be witnesses. In Matthew 10, if you want to turn there with me briefly, Matthew 10 into verse 16. Matthew 10, we'll start in verse 16. I find Jesus gives some good wisdom to his disciples as he shares this message. He says, Behold, in verse 16, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. They will scourge you in the synagogues. And you should be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you up, take no thought as to how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in the same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Now as we think about our need to share the gospel, I love what he says in verse 16. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And the honest truth is that the message of the gospel is indeed offensive. That when you tell somebody that they're a sinner, when you tell them that there is a punishment for their sin, that is an offensive message. And so it's okay if the gospel itself is the part that is offensive, but if it's the way that I tell the gospel that's offensive, before they even have the chance to hear the message, then I have forfeited that opportunity to share the most important message they could ever hear. I think of even if you ever were to wander IEPUI during a nice warm day, especially in the fall, this seems to happen the most, you'll walk through one of the main areas on campus, the Taylor Courtyard, and as you walk through there, there are often some street preachers who somehow get permission to be on campus there and preach. And to be honest, they are some of the most unkind men I have ever heard. And they yell insults and they do anything they can to get a rise out of people, to get a reaction, to get an argument. And honestly, I don't even think they believe the true gospel. But if I was to try to have as good of an influence as I could at IPUI's campus, if I was to walk to that same spot where they were preaching and stand up there and preach the gospel message and yell it out there, most likely I know that most students are going to make an assumption about who I am there because I'm going to the same spot and I'm doing the same style that those men would do. And so for, for the sake of my witness on IPUI's campus, I know that I probably have to do it a different way than that. That takes to some extent some wisdom to know the situation, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
And if we learn to look at the situation in front of us and ask God to give us the wisdom to assess it, to give us the right moment to share that gospel, the right tone of voice, the right passage to share, God loves to do that. Not only do we need to know that even in, as we share the way that we share the gospel, we also just need the wisdom to be patient as we share the gospel message. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-9 says, I have planted, Paulus watered, but God gave the increase. So neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. Every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor, for we are laborers together with God. And this passage reminds us of the important truth that some do the planting, some do the watering, and God himself gives the increase. And even though the urgency of your soul wants someone to get saved right now, we plead with them, we ask them, we tell them, today is the best day you could receive this message of the gospel. We also have to ask God to give us the wisdom to be patient as he works individually on hearts and minds in his own way. As some plant and some water, God gives the increase. I remember I, I had the chance to preach in a coal war in Boston, Massachusetts on a mission trip one time. And I remember thinking how disappointed I was that in that message nobody responded that day, especially some that we had been working all week to build relationships with. And the missionary who was leading us in that mission trip pulled me aside afterwards and says, you don't think the work is done now, do you? God is continually working on this person's heart to share the gospel with them. One will plant, one will water, God will give the increase. Be encouraged that you had a part in that process right now. It's wonderful for all of us to remember that we need to be patient and have that wisdom. And then the last thing we'll look at this morning is confidently open your mouth. Even as we were reviewing the PowerPoints, I was asked, are you sure this is the way you want to word that? <laughs> as we put that in the sermon this morning. But I think it is important for us to realize that ultimately, one of the best ways we can share the gospel is simply by telling it. Romans 1.16 reminds us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In the end, you can be confident in two things. Number one, you can be confident that the gospel is powerful and that it has nothing to do with you. The gospel message is powerful despite you. And number two, the Holy Spirit is in you and he helps you as you share. That passage we looked at even a moment ago where it talked about being wise as we share the gospel said that even in the moments where you're not sure, the Holy Spirit will give you those words. So it's important for us to remember that the gospel needs to be preached. Romans 10 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear if there's not a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? The reminder there is in order for people to hear the gospel message, somebody at some point has to open their mouth and share that message. And so we progress with confidence knowing that the gospel is powerful, knowing that the Holy Spirit gives us the strength to share that wonderful gospel message. Friend, make that invitation. Pray constantly over these opportunities. Because as we look here in Matthew 4, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said in verse 19, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. God has called each of us to be fishers of men. He's called for each of us to be pursuers of people who look for the best opportunities we can to share the gospel as much as we can with others. And then we realize that, it, that we are not done once the fish is caught. But it's, a, it's a really a path that continues long after that, like John Newton exemplified, like so many others, maybe even your own life, have exemplified. Parents, you realize you have that chance with your children. You have the chance to see them saved if, you, if you're able to share that gospel message with them. And Lord willing, you're able to see them saved and you bring them under your wing and you are their chief discipler in life. 
For others, we look and we have friends that have come to faith in Christ, and you have the chance to bring them under your wing and can help them grow little by little. Because discipleship, it is taught, it's also exemplified just in your life. It's exemplified through the friendship that you make with others as you bring them along the path with you. That as you say, I'm going to walk with Jesus, do you want to walk with Jesus with me? That really is what this call to discipleship is like. And so, I pray that today, as we think about our need to be disciples, that as we have this call as Colonial Hills Baptist Church to accomplish the Great Commission in our city and in the world, each one of us is called to be a discipler, and there is great joy we get to be a part of it right at the beginning. And so truly, discipleship starts with being fishers of men. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.